Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you that we can come together in freedom and uh, be able to sing your praises and be able to remember together the things that you do in our lives and are doing. And We uh, ask God that now you would teach us as we think and uh, reason together. We would ask that uh, this time that we spend in study or in reflection would change us, make us more like Jesus, our Savior. And it is in his name that we ask this prayer. Amen. Well, here we are, 2017. Woohoo! <laughs> it's a busy time. It's back to school. It's back to work. It's kids back in activities and uh, back in sports and so. Uh, here at Deer Creek Church, it's a busy time too. Things start re-engaging. Life groups start meeting again. Volunteer teams ramp up. And if you're looking for an opportunity to serve, there's a way to do that. Students head off on winter retreats. In fact, be praying for students as they do that because it seems like every year when we send students off to retreats, some of them come back having understood uh, the need to put their faith in Jesus. So be in prayer for students. Joseph, when is the, isn't there a retreat coming up? Next weekend, so be in prayer about that, but this is just a time of the year when uh, things re-engage. It's kind of busy, 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 and I can, uh, it can actually start to feel a little exhausting from all of the things that uh, are on our calendars, uh, even when we think about all that's going on, and then we realize there's a lot of pressure often to add more more things. And the danger is we actually do that. We just keep adding more and more to where we are overcommitted and overwhelmed and overburdened. And when that happens, life can feel to us much like a, just an activity blur, uh, not something that we savor, not something we experience, not something we necessarily enjoy or even remember. And so this morning, I want to talk about not what we need to start doing, but actually what we need to quit doing and uh, that's really what I'd like to focus in on. Hence the title of this series. We're entering into a, a little four-week series this morning. It's called Quitting Time. And we're going to be talking about some very toxic habits that we kind of embrace and accept. And uh, we're going to talk about the need to quit doing these things. We've kind of come to accept these things as normal, just an everyday part of life. And I would argue they shouldn't be. Not really. In fact, they end up kind of keeping us from the life that God intends us to live, the life that God has for us in his son, Jesus. Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, a gentleman whose books I have really appreciated reading over the years, he recently passed away, but he's a Christian thinker and philosopher and, and author. He's a mentor to many when it comes to personal spiritual formation. Uh, he was speaking at a gathering of pastors one time, and the pastors asked him, uh, to give them some insight on how to handle the always increasing pressures of life. Uh, things like family and finances and ministry pressures and leadership development and all those things. How do we balance these things and manage them in ways that help us actually become more like Jesus? That was the question they were asking him. Everybody expected him to say something very profound and probably give them a list of things they needed to start doing, right? Uh, things like pray more, that would be one you might expect, or plan more because planning is a, a key piece of managing busy schedules. Read more, maybe study more, you know, ways to be more spiritual. And just a little parenthesis aside, 
Churches are great, aren't we, at uh, making people feel, uh, you know, you need to be more spiritual. So here's some stuff you need to add to what you already do. Do this and, and do this and do this and this and this uh, and just kind of a litany of things, more things for people to do. But instead of that, Dallas Willard in that context, very surprisingly, just said this. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And there was stunned silence. <laughs> the, the pastors were a little shocked. What? No, that's right. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's what he told them. And I have thought a lot about this from the moment I read that. I thought, really? Is it, is it that simple? Is, that, is hurry that big of problem? And as I've reflected on this, I got to say, I think he's right. Uh, so here's my hypothetical. Here's what I want us to consider this morning. What if, okay, what if hurry is actually one of, if not the single greatest barriers to our experiencing the fullness of God, the fullness of the spirit and growth in our faith in God? What if? And I say hypothetical because most of us think of hurry as, well, you know, a good thing. If not good, at least neutral. You know, it's a way to get more done do more faster. But what if, just for the sake of this sermon, if you'll kind of bear with me, what if our frantic pace, our never resting, our always multitasking, always trying to do more, faster, and better is hurting the main thing uh, in our lives, which is to connect to him? What if, what if hurry uh, is hurting our lives, our relationships, our families, our work, our sense of self, our sense of joy, our sense of peace. What if hurry is actually a barrier to our being who we're supposed to be and our connecting with whom we're supposed to connect, God himself? I was recently shopping at King Supers. This was back closer to Christmas, actually, and, and uh, I was trying to find a parking space. Yay, right? You know how that is. And I had circled around a few times. I wasn't finding one. Uh, but I, I didn't have anywhere I had to be. Um, or there weren't, wasn't a deadline in front of me. In fact, the matter was I wasn't in a rush. I was just looking and waiting. And I finally saw a car pulling out, backing out of its space. And you know how parking lot etiquette works. You pull up behind that car and you put your turn signal on, indicating that you're going to turn into that parking space. And then you wait patiently for the person to pull out and to leave. And then you pull into their space. And as I sat there, another car came from the opposite direction. And it stopped too and turned on the turn signal as if they were going to take my space. Now, uh, this was kind of a parking lot standoff. And I sort of pointed to the space and I said, that's, you know, my space. I'm going to pull in there as if they could hear me. And he kind of pointed too and said something. I don't know what he said. But before I knew it, he had parked in my space. And I got really angry. I, I just about lost it. I mean, everybody knows the rules. The first person there gets the space. So I did what any good pastor would do. I just rammed him, just slammed right into him. A couple times, actually. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I wouldn't be here. I'd be in jail. But the, I did voodoo curse him kind of under my breath as I drove away. And when I think back on that experience and kind of what was boiling up inside of me, I felt kind of convicted about my response. It wasn't that I was just frustrated or 
impatient or angry. It was the fact that I wasn't even in a hurry. But what I found in that moment is that hurry was inside of me. I wasn't in a rush to get anywhere. I wasn't in a rush to do anything. I wasn't in a rush to have to go help somebody or solve some problem. But there was a sense of hurry deep down inside of me that just came out in the moment. You know, there's research that's been done on this. Uh, One place, the London School of Business and Finance, finds that more and more people suffer today from what is being called hurry sickness. Interesting, hurry sickness. It's a uh, compulsive need to do more and to go faster, even when there's no objective reason to do that. Have you ever been in a rush when there's no need to be rushing? I bet you have. I have. According to this research, there are four key indicators uh, of a person who has hurry sickness. And I want to mention these to you just quickly. See if you relate to any of these. See if they, they connect with you. One sure indicator, they say, is a nagging sense that there is never enough time. How long has it been since you felt that or said that to someone? There's just not enough time. If you have hurry sickness, you have this nagging sense day after day. I'm just not finding enough time to get everything done. Kind of hilarious, really. In the 1960s, there was a group of futurists. You know who futurists are. They write books to tell you what's going to happen in the future. A group of futurists actually spoke to the uh, Congress, the U.S. Congress, and told that Congress that by 1985, a time long ago, but by 1985, due to advances in technology and efficiency, they predicted that people would work 22 hours a day, a day for 27 weeks of the year. And they said the rest of the year they would just have off. And they predicted that the the number one problem, the biggest problem that people would have in the year 1985 would be that people would have too much spare time. How close did they get? (laughs) Yeah, not close at all. (laughs) Not close at all. The truth is we feel exactly the opposite. The one thing we feel we never have enough of is Time And so we do more faster. In other words, we hurry. Now, here's the thing about hurry. Hurry isn't actually saving you any time. It's not giving you more seconds to spend later. It's just ruining the seconds that you're spending right now. That's what hurry does. If you're always feeling there's not enough time, and so therefore you're in a hurry, you're suffering from hurry sickness. Here's a second indicator they mentioned. I found this one very interesting. They said that people who live in this this cloud of hurry often have a lack of meaning, a lack of depth, a lack of joy in their lives. That's the way they described it, a lack of meaning, a lack of depth, a lack of joy in their life. In other words, as you try to do more and more and more, less of it feels meaningful. Now I kind of understand what they're talking about. Less of it feels significant, like it really matters. And it all becomes kind of a giant blur of activity. I can hardly remember what I did yesterday, let alone last week. That was something they brought up, and I got to thinking, what did I do last week? (laughs) And I had trouble remembering it. I'm kind of guilty on this one, too. It's as if there's just a lot of stuff going by in a blur and and life starts to lose meaning if you live it that way. There's an economist named Jeremy Rifkin. 
wrote a book called Time Wars. has a lot of insightful things to say in this book, but here's one of them. It says, despite our alleged deficiency, we seem to have less time for ourselves and far less time for each other. We have quickened the pace of life only to become less patient. We have become more organized, but less spontaneous, less joyful. We are better prepared to act on the future, but less able to enjoy the present and to reflect. That's interesting. Reflect on the past. Today, we have surrounded ourselves with time-saving technology, only to be overwhelmed by plans that cannot be carried out and appointments that cannot be honored and schedules that cannot be fulfilled and deadlines that cannot be met. You feel like you need to take a deep breath right now? I mean, I relate to this, I'm sad to say. Now, they say this is why hurried people never look very happy. Have you noticed that? Hurried people are not happy. Look at the guy in the rearview mirror who's tailgating you and honking his horn. He's not smiling with a big smile on his face. He's hurried. You can't really hurry and be happy if you think about it. You can't really hurry and experience peace and and joy. They don't go together. And there's a lack of meaning in that if that's the way you're living your life. Here's another sign, third sign they mentioned, hurry sickness. It's a lack of compassion. Now, I swallowed hard when I read this one because I can just see in myself, there are times in myself when because of hurry, I don't want to be bothered with whatever your need is or my wife's or my children or my grandchildren. You see, it's a very selfish way to live. You know, people who are in a hurry simply don't have time to help. There's a famous study that was done among students at Princeton Theological Seminary, which is not where I went, but Princeton Theological Seminary. Students were brought together, and they were asked to prepare a short sermon on the Good Samaritan. Not making this up. really happened. And when they uh, were done with the preparation of that sermon, that message, they were supposed to get up out of their seats and leave the building they were in and walk to another building where they would give that message that they had prepared. Now, there was a little trick, a little plan here. On their walk, every one of those students, it was a setup, would encounter a person who was slumped over and groaning and in clear distress. (laughs) They needed help. You can see where this is going, right? And the question was, would a seminary student who was studying to be a pastor, to work in a church, who was about to give a sermon on the Good Samaritan, would that person stop and help a person in need? Now, there was a catch. There were different groups of students. Uh, There was a group of students that were told uh, that they were already late. They were already running out of time. They didn't have much time to prepare the message and to get over to the building where they were going to give that message. And there was another group that was told they had plenty of time. Take as much time as you need to prepare, and when you're ready, get up, go to the building that you're supposed to go to and, and give your message. No rush whatsoever. You want to know what happened? This is pretty shocking, really. About 60% of all the students in all the groups offered no help. 60%. So only four out of 10 stopped to render any assistance. But here's the real shocker. The real shocking factor was that only one out of 10 students who were in a hurry stopped to help. One out of 10. One out of 10 students walking to give a sermon on helping a person in need stopped to help a person in need. Now, we chuckle and laugh. You know what? I bet we're no different. I bet we're no different. 
not when we're in a hurry. So I got a question for you. How often do you rush by someone in need? You're just too busy to ask how are you doing and really mean it. How often do you rush by a friend, a spouse, a coworker, someone in crisis just because you're in a hurry? And hurry keeps you from being Jesus in that moment to someone who probably needed Jesus. I'm going to mention one more indicator here of this whole hurry sickness thing. And I thought this was interesting. A lack of grace, they said. A lack of grace. When you hurry, when hurry is inside you, you are going to feel more and more deprived of grace. And ironically, as we do life hurriedly, we're not really storing up extra time, as I said a moment uh, a moment ago, we're actually storing up things like impatience and frustration and stress and anger. That's what we store up when we hurry. Studies actually show that being in a hurry is not just a stress reaction, it's actually a stress trigger. The brain actually releases more adrenaline into the body when you are in a hurry, which is why you get angry. That's why you get impatient with others and with yourselves when you're in a hurry. We stop experiencing grace. We stop being gracious people. It's why when we're in a hurry, so many of us, uh, so many of us experience bad things happening. Oh, I knocked this over. Oh, I. So on Christmas Eve, uh, actually, I think, it, I think it was Christmas Eve. We got home, and my uh, my in-laws uh, have this big old suburban, and my uh, my father-in-law is getting kind of old and doesn't see too well, you know, at night and so on, and, and he needed to move his car. And so I said, oh, I got it, and I wanted to get out there and move it quickly and so on. I got the keys and got in the car, started up, and vroom, zoom, vroom, boom, into my neighbor's car. Yeah, I was in a hurry. I didn't bother. I, I didn't have time to look around. I mean, he never parks there. What's wrong with you, you idiot? Fortunately, my neighbor's not here this morning, but you can see why. But, but, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, hit his car, insurance got involved, and so on and so forth. Made it all right. Had to apologize. Bad things happen when we're in a hurry. But here's the thing. Jesus had a very specific response to hurry, right? In Luke chapter 10, there's a very familiar story to many of us. Uh, we read these words that says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Now, that's actually important because Jesus and his disciples were going somewhere. H how do you handle going somewhere? When you're going somewhere, do you want to get there in a hurry? Okay, Jesus and his disciples are going somewhere. They're on their way, but it, it kind of strikes me. They take a pause. They, they take a detour, so to speak. They're on their way, but it says he came to a village where a woman, Martha, opened her home to him. And instead of saying, hey, thanks, Martha, that's really sweet of you, that was kind, but you know, we're on our way somewhere. No, he stops. And um, with his disciples, they go in. Now, you need to know that in that day, hospitality was a supreme cultural value, much more so than even in our culture. Uh, to not show great hospitality would dishonor yourself, perhaps also dishonor your guest. And so you can imagine Martha is feeling some stress at having all of these guests now suddenly at her home. And so this is what we read. It says, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work myself? Tell her to help me. 
And listen to how Jesus slows her down. This is actually very tender. It's very tender what Jesus, he could have said, oh, Martha, shut up. I mean, Jesus wouldn't do that, but, you know, pastors would, but not Jesus. I mean, he's really very tender in how he does this. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, get your head out of the clouds. Come on, Martha, get with the program. None of that. I mean, instead he just says, Martha, Martha. He just kind of gets her attention in a very tender way. And he says, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, as we read that story, do you hear the hurry in Martha? You hear that in this story? I mean, could you hear the rush and the anxiety and the stress, the pressure that she feels? She's thinking there's lots to do. What if it doesn't go right? What if the food's not just right? What if the guests aren't feeling honored? And so hurry wells up in Martha, and she begins to make certain assumptions, the kind of assumptions we all make when we're in a hurry. One of her assumptions is that Jesus doesn't care about her struggle. Lord, don't you care, she says. Don't you see all that I have to do? Aren't you going to do something about this, she says. And isn't that exactly how we feel when we're rushed or when we're in a hurry? Like we're the only person who's trying, the only person who's working, the only person who's struggling to get something done. And no one else really cares. No one else really notices. Now, Martha also assumes that she's alone in all of this, which is an interesting assumption. She says, my sister has left me to do all the work by myself. Have you ever thought that? I bet you felt that over the holidays at points. Have you ever said that to a spouse or a significant other or a colleague or a roommate? Do you see what I'm doing here? I'm doing this all by myself. But you have. And hurry does that to us. It usually makes us feel alone. And when we feel alone, what do we do? We tend to hurry more. But here's the thing. And we see this right here in this story. Martha was not alone. Jesus was right there in the room with her. In fact, this is kind of crazy. Imagine the God of the universe is sitting on your sofa. Yeah? And he's relaxing in your living room. That's where Jesus is with Martha. He's hanging out. He's talking. He was on his way somewhere, but he took time out to come into Martha's home and to interact and to have an exchange and to teach. And that's why Mary was sitting right there at his feet. But here's Martha. She's missing this. And hurry always does that to us. It gets us to miss the things that matter most. This is why hurry is so destructive. And in this story, what mattered most was that God, Jesus, was right there with Martha. And notice, Jesus isn't stressed. He's not anxious. He's not going, Martha, Martha, get the grub in here. Come on, Martha. He's not putting that pressure on her. He's not asking her to hurry up. In this story, Jesus is with Martha, or at least he wants to be. But Martha is only thinking about other things, what's not getting done or what's not perfect. And maybe she was thinking, too, about her reputation. What are people going to think of me? 
Are, are they going to be impressed with the kind of hostess I am? It's, it's also very possible. We don't know this, of course. But it's very possible that Martha's uh, preparations for these guests was very elaborate, too elaborate, over the top, right? Maybe she's getting out to China for this, and they're just passing through. We don't know that for sure. But we do know this. Hurry is robbing her from being with the God of the universe. Go figure. And this is why I think this winter, friends, we don't need to do more faster. I think as a congregation, we need to ruthlessly and intentionally eliminate hurry from our lives. I think that's something we need to think about. And how do you do that? Well, first of all, we have to embrace the fact that we can't do this ourselves. I mean, that's not the way we're sewn up. It's not the way we, we do life. You just can't try harder to go slower and be more patient. Uh, if you don't believe me, go try it and see how that works for you. Uh, Jesus said to a crowd of people one time, some remarkable words, really, these are remarkable words. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. These are people in a hurry. And I will give you rest, he said. That was a promise. That was a declaration that Jesus made. Not, you know, I'm going to give you some burdens or some tasks or things to add to your to-do list, more pressure, you know, to perform. He didn't say that. He said, I want you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he said. For I am gentle. Gentle doesn't go with hurry. And humble. Humble usually doesn't go with hurry. In heart. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, said Jesus. And then he said this. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Very, very interesting words. Jesus is saying quite directly, don't try this alone. You're not going to find rest for your soul just because you try harder to find rest for your soul. You must, he says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. That's what he said we need to do. You know, a yoke is a harness that two oxen would be harnessed together in. You've seen this. Um, we're not many of us farmers. There you go. Two uh, oxen. I think those are oxen yoked together. And uh, that way, by yoking them together, they could plow a field or pull a load. And very, very important that they work in step with one another. A yoke only worked if you moved at the same speed. Um, in fact, very often, uh, it was the case where you would take an older, more experienced oxen or animal, put the yoke on them, and then put them with a younger, inexperienced animal, because the younger, inexperienced animal was always going too fast or pulling back and going too slow. It needed to learn the rhythms necessary to plow effectively all day long, and you can only do that with the right rhythm, the right speed. Um, you can see where Jesus is going with this. Jesus is not saying, I just want you to spend some time with me on the weekends at church and maybe when you go to a life group or something. Jesus is saying, look, if you want rest for your soul, you actually have to do life with me, with my rhythm, at my pace. No slower, no faster. You have to take my yoke upon you, he says. And here's the thing. Jesus never hurried. I checked it out. I thought, well, maybe there's some indicator somewhere in the Gospels where Jesus was in a hurry. Nope, couldn't find it. Maybe if you know where it is, you can tell me after the service. Jesus never hurried. It's remarkable. I mean, he was busy. 
He had lots of demands on his time. He had some very emotional urgency from time to time with people dying. Hey, would you come heal my daughter? And so on. Oh, my daughter died. And he would just continue going, and he would raise her from the dead. I mean, there are examples, lots of examples in Jesus' life and ministry of emotional urgency, lots of pressure. There were times that were stressful, to be sure, but he never hurried. This is incredible. In fact, if you look at his life, he intentionally set up rhythms in his life to help him resist the temptation of hurry. That's how important this was. He would get up early in the mornings. I I take it probably every day. Don't know if that's actually true, but very, very frequently, the disciples would get up and they'd be going, where's Jesus? And they'd go out and, oh, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. They'd go find him. He's out there by himself. He's talking to God. He's reflecting. He's doing a variety of things. And that was something, uh, you know, he would, he would sometimes wait when others felt the need to rush. He had the courage to say no to things he knew he wasn't called to do. When they wanted him to be king, hey, you'd be a great king. Man, you could supply bread. You could kill all the Romans. You'd be awesome. And Jesus said, yeah, no, thank you. That's not my agenda. That's not why I've come. That's not my mission. He knew when to say no to things that people wanted him to do. And that is Jesus' yoke. That is his rhythm of life. And we need to learn to walk with our lives in step with him so that we can avoid this toxic problem of hurry. Now, how do we do that? Well, I just happen to have five suggestions for us. Just five suggestions. I actually do have five suggestions, so, you know, chill. Five suggestions. These are things, you'll, you'll, you may relate to one or another of these more than, you know, and I'm not suggesting that everybody here is going to wrap themselves around every one of these suggestions. But these are my suggestions. Number one, set a time each day to practice slowing down. Now, this is hard because I've been practicing this. And for me, this is hard. This takes real intentionality. One of the best ways to combat the habit of speeding up is to introduce the habit of slowing down. And here's one to try. So here's what I've been doing. So you you can change this any way you want, any way it would work for you if you're so inclined. But I've been trying to take 10 minutes. Now, that doesn't sound like very much. You try it, and you'll see it's a lot. Take 10 minutes and stop whatever else I'm doing, everything. Shut the phone off. Don't look at emails. uh, Put the laptop down, you know. Sit in silence and do absolutely nothing. Now, the goal here is not to have a spiritual epiphany. It's not so that, um, you know, you think God's going to, you know, literally break. The goal here is just to slow it down. Stop the mind. Put the mind in more of a listening mode than an active mode. And just have unhurried time. And here's what I've been finding when I do this. I become aware of things that I typically lose sight of and forget. Things that are really important. uh, Stuff that I forget when I'm in a hurry. Things like, oh, God is here with me. He really is. Oh, my gosh, I'm thinking about these appointments that I've got today, and I shouldn't be taking this 10 minutes. Oh, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, it's, it's okay. God's going to go with me to those appointments. Other, other thoughts I've had, I had an overwhelming sense on, on one of these occasions that, that God just loves me. Not for what I've got on my calendar. Not for what I might get done today. He just loves me. And and 10 minutes will feel to you like an eternity if you actually try this. I promise you, it's it's much longer. It feels much longer than you might think. But 
what great time I'm discovering can be spent and can be, what great lessons can be learned, what great things can be remembered in just 10 minutes. God really cares about me. There are lots of ways that you could practice slowing down. You don't have to do it exactly this way. But the one rule that you can't do is that you can't do anything else while you're doing this, right? This is not a multitasking time. Well, you know, I'll, I'll slow down and while I'm at it, I'll just, uh, I'll, uh, I'll memorize scripture maybe. I mean, I'm not saying memorizing scripture is bad. Memorizing scripture is good. That's a great activity. But, I mean, this is a just slow down activity, Right? The point is to stop and to slow down. That's number one. We got five of these. Second suggestion, take advantage of the opportunities to wait. Here's my observation. I'm 62 years old. My observation is life is a lot of waiting. And just a confession, I hate waiting, okay? I hate waiting. Uh, but here's the truth. Anytime we find ourselves waiting, waiting in line, waiting on hold, right? Waiting for a call to come, waiting for some important news, Here's what God is doing. God is at work in our heart and on our character to teach us things like patience. And we know this is true because we know that God is at work in every moment of our lives. The Apostle Paul made this declaration. It's one you're familiar with. Many Christians are familiar with this. This is the old Romans 8.28. He says, we know that in all things... That's every moment of our lives. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we know he's up to something in the moments where we wait. So God is using every experience to train us, to grow us up, to develop wisdom, to grow compassion, to build patience. He's always working in us and through our circumstances to develop, actually, the fruits of the Spirit. That's what he wants to develop in us, the fruits of the Spirit. He wants those to be just ingrained in who we are, who we're becoming. Fruits of the Spirit, things like love. Do you know how hard it is to love when you're in a hurry? Things like joy. Try having real joy when you're in a hurry. Peace. Nah, doesn't work. Patience. There you go. Okay, kindness. Try to be really kind to someone. Back to the seminary students at Princeton. Why couldn't they be kind? They were in a hurry, you see. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, these are the fruits of the Spirit. These are the things God is always at work to develop in here. And hurry disrupts every one of them. And therefore, we know that whenever we have, and I'll, I'll call it an opportunity, okay? I'm stretching a little bit. An opportunity to wait, well, it's training time. It's actually time to have a moment with God. I don't know. If you're waiting in line... Hello, Lord. I'm here. I'm waiting. Is there anything you want to say to me? Thank you, Lord. Develop this patience thing in me. I need that. Or it could be, you know, a prayer time, a listening time. It could be time to rest your mind and just, just kind of breathe a little more slowly. It could be a lot of things. I love how the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah reflected on this. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him, I would say, in those moments of waiting. You see, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And I got to tell you, a lot of times when I'm waiting, I feel like I need to be saved. I mean, God saved me from this. But, but actually, he's trying to work and create something in me that's good and healthy. Yeah? Think about that. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
And so if you are stuck in a traffic jam or in a line at King Supers or in an elevator, God forbid, what else can you do but wait, really? But why waste that time? Why not wait for him and with him? Quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. The waiting is an opportunity to remember who's in control. It's not you. It's not me. It's him. The waiting is an opportunity to remember who's got the plan that's going to ultimately succeed. Uh, It's an opportunity to remember just whose I am. Who do I belong to? It's an opportunity to remember who is with me. It's an opportunity to grow. God has good things for us when we pause and wait on him, listening and reflecting instead of hurrying and being irritable and being angry. Take advantage of the opportunities to wait. Third suggestion. These are a little shorter. Schedule occasional time alone. Go ahead, laugh out loud. Schedule some occasional time alone. I know we think that's impossible. You know what one of the most anxious moments for people in our world today is? It's the anxiety we feel when we have nothing to do. That's why our smartphones are so important to us. I don't ever want to be alone without my smartphone. I don't ever want to have a moment of downtime. I don't ever want to have to you know, fill in the blanks, have a vacuum here. And that's just a huge problem. Because you see, if you want to be a thoughtful person, if you want to know you, really, you must schedule unscheduled time. That's a little ironic. But I know that this can be really complicated. If you're a family with kids, oh, my goodness, ah, this is very complicated. Uh, if you're married, it's complicated. If you are at work with lots of demands, it's complicated. You might have to take turns with a spouse or you might have to you know, sneak some time at work. Don't ever say I said that here. Uh, but, you know, you might have to do that. I think every follower of Jesus should spend occasional time, occasional time, just down time to listen, to empty, maybe see what God wants to say to us. Uh, and this, of course, is not, I'm not talking about getting a rest, a rest from the busyness. I'm talking about moments where we actually, because we're, we're focused inward, we discover what's really going on in our souls. Some of us in this room have no idea what's churning deep down inside of us. In fact, we, we really have very little idea who we actually are. We've been moving so fast and avoiding so much, and we're unwilling to look at the stuff that churns inside, the pain, the hurt, the whatever, whatever is there. And I'll tell you, that's not what God wants for us. God is not asking us to just keep moving, just keep going, just keep producing. He wants us to experience joy and peace and patience and life. And we need time alone just to allow that stuff that's in us that sometimes prevents that from happening, allow it to bubble to the surface, to identify it, to talk to him about it, to seek help with wrestling with it. And um, we need to schedule time alone, figure out a way to do that. For some of you, that could be exactly what you needed to hear this morning. From the looks of you, that's not the case. None of you feel that way. But anyway, fourth suggestion, learn to say no. I don't need to say too much about this. Some of you are really good at this. It's just a gift. No, you know, you're good at it. Others of us are kind of yes people. And for yes people, this is a big deal. I am a yes person. It pains me to say no to someone if I think that's going to disappoint them. I don't want to disappoint people, but we have to learn to say no. If Jesus had never said no, he would have been put on a throne he didn't even want to be on with people. 
He would have been a king expected with all kinds of expectations for what he will do and how he'll get rid of the enemy and so on and so forth, but he said no. Um, you know what? Let's practice this. Right now, turn to somebody next to you, uh, if you're next to somebody, and just tell them emphatically, no. Just tell them, come on, do it. Does that feel good? Doesn't that feel good? <laughs> no. <laughs> you can tell me that, sir. There you go. Yeah. I'm probably wrecking havoc with some marriages or something. It feels good to say. Uh, I feel like I, um, we just need to learn to, with grace and gentleness and kindness, say no. Uh, we can't always say no, nor should we, but sometimes that is the right thing to say in order to live an unhurried life, right? Okay, last suggestion, uh, <clears throat> and that is this. Practice, and that word's key, practice. Practice a weekly Sabbath. This is what Tim talked about last week. This may be the most difficult, but I think it's probably the most important. Take a weekly Sabbath. For six days a week, it's, it's okay to think about productivity and efficiency and getting more stuff done and so. But then you get a day that's different, don't you see? God commands us in this. He says that life is not 24-7, same thing every day, seven days a week. It's 24-6. You get a day a week that is supposed to be different. And there are a lot of ways to experiment with the Sabbath day. We saw Jesus sometimes walking with his disciples, sometimes picking grains, which violated customs of the day, not the law of God. We saw sometimes Jesus taking his disciples on a vacation up the East Coast where it was just them spending time together. There's different things you can do with Sabbath. And you do definitely need to experiment. One aspect of Sabbath, though, is always connecting with God. Because when we do that, we remember who he is. We remember who we are, that life has meaning and purpose, and that's why we gather. That's one of the very reasons we gather here. Maybe in addition for your practice of Sabbath, it's a day of not checking your email or not taking calls from work. Maybe it's a day you spend with your family you worship together, then you play or recreate together. Maybe it's a day you spend alone in solitude, letting God speak to you or you talking to God. Maybe, it's, maybe your practice of Sabbath is a day spent with close friends, having conversations you don't get to have often enough. Maybe it's a day to just do something you love but you never get to do in better weather. You know, if it's golf, you go golf. Or if it's cooking, maybe you love to cook. If it's bowling, for crying out loud, get a better sport. Um, I mean, every week, though, every week we need this rhythm. God built this rhythm into us, and when we ignore it, we do so to our own destruction. Every week we get a day that's supposed to be different, a day designed to help us connect with God, learn something about him, put it into, uh, app, to apply it in our lives, to hear from God and so, but also we get a day to refresh and to relax and to recharge, spiritually speaking. And here's the thing. I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, Dwayne, yeah, that sounds good for you. I don't have the time to practice anything like that. And to that I would just say, okay, but understand, you are choosing to live life in a hurry if you choose not to Sabbath. The fact is all of us have stuff to manage. 
Anybody here with nothing to do? Come see me after the service. <laughs> nothing to do. No, we, we run kids around or grandkids. We make money. We manage relationships. All kinds of stuff we all have to do. But just know, if you can't or won't practice Sabbath, then you aren't really choosing to do life yoked to Jesus. It's just that simple. Jesus was big on practicing Sabbath. Every Sabbath day, you would find him in synagogue, you would find him at the temple, and you would find him doing stuff with people he loved, people he cared about, hanging out, relaxing. Sabbath worship, Sabbath resting, Sabbath relaxing, Sabbath refreshment was an important rhythm in Jesus' life. You think you can ignore that? One time, Jesus made this declaration. He said, the Son of Man. That was a title that he applied to himself. It's an Old Testament title. He said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Ooh, <laughs> interesting. He's saying, look, I'm Lord of peace. I am Lord of joy. I am Lord of recreation and relaxation. I am Lord of resting in and being in love with God the Father, and I want you to know the joy and the refreshment of my Sabbath. And I'll just end with this. My challenge to you is this week, intentionally commit to eliminating hurry in your life. And if you do, I promise you something. I promise your life will be better. I promise that. I promise it. Resist the temptation to rust. To, to rust. Don't rust. <laughs> That's the big takeaway from this morning. <laughs> Resist the temptation to rush when you don't need to. Stop and take moments to be still and to be quiet and to remember God is right there with you always. Another way to say it, take Jesus' yoke upon you. Model your life, your rhythms after his. Walk with him at his pace. Make his priorities your priorities. Commit to ruthlessly eliminating hurry in your life. That's the toxic habit number one. Next week, we'll dive into another. Pray with me. Father, help us in this to be more like Jesus. And we really mean help us because, God, this is absolutely not something we can do ourselves. So please do help us. Fill us with your spirit, produce in us the fruits of the spirit, and help us to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. For we see no hurry in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.